0: favorite meat food from Salon is called kankankan, it's suya, it's a spicy grilled kebab and you don't really like get to see it necessarily at events, You like if, you, if you're if you driving around town you see, especially at night, you see people that sell it and you go there and you buy it, so it's not like you eat it on special occasions, you just eat it whenever you feel, but usually if you're coming from the club at night or in the morning and you're like really hungry, you and your friends can just stop by, you know, the local guy and just get yourself some Kanaka kind of you can eat it with bread but that's doing too much my name is nomonde and my absolute favorite meat to eat from south africa is malamuhodu. so malamuhodu is essentially tripe and intestines of a cow um it's generally a winter food because it's very warm um so you would eat it in, as a form of a stew with porridge or with dumpling or even with bread Um, Yeah, so most of us just eat it at home, but if you go to a restaurant that proposes to sell South African food, tripe is definitely on the menu.
1: So one of my favorite foods with meat in it is something called tigadegana. My family is from Mali, and my mom had my sisters and I grew up with all types of different foods from Mali that she would cook here in the States, and that was one of my favorites growing up. It's a peanut butter stew with lamb or beef or any type of meat in it. Um, and it's not a food that you eat on any type of special occasion. It's just like one of the stews of the week um, and usually eat that with rice. Um, and it's something that I grew up on and it's my favorite. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Yamachama, which means roasted meat and Kaspahili is a Kenyan delicacy. I absolutely love Nyama Choma because it brings my family together and we typically eat Nyama Choma with okali, which is maize flour Kachimbari which is a salsa and wiki which is kale
0: friends of the podcast who are all from different parts of Africa to send in recordings of meat-based dishes
1: from their respective countries. Because this is an episode all about meats, a prized delicacy in many African cuisines and in global cuisines more generally. On this episode, we're asking
0: and answering the age-old question of why we eat certain animals but are repulsed at the thought of eating others. Why do we deride certain communities for eating dog meat, for example, but beef, chicken, and pork are acceptable?
1: For Africans and members of the Global South, all meats are on the table, with no strong distinction between the wild and the domesticated.
0: We unpack the West's uneasy relationship with the more extensive meat repertoires of the East, and use this context
1: to explore how food can divide just as much as it unites. Discrimination, stereotyping, and othering are all divisive tools hinged on the concept of identity. Food is both a cultural artifact and a physical representation of identity, and as such, it is often implicated in these processes. But what can food tell us about the
0: flexibility of those identities, and more importantly, about how to accept and be in community with each other in more productive and valuable ways.
1: We're going to get into all this and more, so stick around, grab a drink, grab a bite, and let's get into it. I'm Adora.
0: And I'm Ore. Welcome to the Uncooked Remote Podcast. We're
1: women. We don't cook, but we love to eat them. (laughs) <laughs> this is the future the liberals warned you about. And of
0: course, we can need anything about feminism. Welcome to a podcast by self-proclaimed Epicureans that explores Nigerian gastronomy through the lenses of history, science, pop culture, art, and of course,
1: feminism, I am not with her. I remember you telling me that you've eaten rabbit before and quite frankly I think that's a sign of sociopathy. Why? because they're cute Yes because they're cute so like they're not eat rabbits because they're cute. That's not what I'm saying. My thing is your utter lack of hesitation to say yes. I ate rabbits and I loved it.
0: I can assure you that our ancestors were not looking at animals and thinking, you know, um, like you're adorable. I'm not going to eat you. I'm not going to cook you and tonight stew.
1: Well, maybe they should because rabbits are fairy tale creatures, and I don't understand why anybody should feel comfortable eating them. Okay, a rabbit, a
0: rabbit is cute,
1: but you you would
0: still eat lamb. And lambs are really, really cute. Like lambs are super cute. Why would you not eat a rabbit, but you eat lamb? Like, see, your argument is already flawed.
1: Whatever. You need to whatever. find another reason. Whatever. I mean, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. But did it at least taste good?
0: Though? Oh yes, 100%. They they are super <laughs> lush. They're tasty, and very environmentally friendly. Like they're very lean and. Yeah, they don't have as much fat as your regular red meat. Right. Yeah. Okay. But what I was trying to get at is that I don't look at animals and say, oh, you're cute. What I look at them, what I, when I look at them, I know it sounds very weird. It sounds, since now I've... It sounds sociopathic.
1: Since now, now sounds I have like
0: taken a different course in life, mm-hmm. but I look at them, I'm like, hmm, I wonder what that would taste like. But, you know, like I said, I'm a changed person now. I, I'm trying to walk a different path. And
1: you know what's pissing me off? It's been only 72 hours. It's, like, it's just it's
0: been, been, been seven hours. days. It's been seven days. And I think it's a bit disrespectful that you're not even on this journey
1: with me. For our listeners, in case you're wondering, not that you care, but Aura is vegan now. Yes, I'm vegetarian, vegetarian. yeah. Aura is vegetarian so now.
0: Steps.
1: And what's pissing me off is that you rebrand every two to four days. So okay. this is just... Okay, I just
0: think life is
1: too short to live one life.
0: Like, why why, why can't you be many things?
1: Why not live 5,000 then? That's the reasonable, that's the next <laughs> Literally, thing. like... Anyway, anyway. <laughs> So as we're talking about, that invisible line between the animals we eat and the ones we find cute and don't eat, either because they belong in the wild or because there are pets, that line has been a point of cultural contention for quite some time.
0: It's a very particular tension though, isn't it? Because as we'll explore, it's mostly just us, and I mean Nigerians and global southerners in general, trying to filter our cultures through Western lens
1: you're absolutely right because in nigeria for example the meat on that invisible line is dog meat so dog meat is typically eaten in cross river state plateau state gombi aquaibom ondo and abuja but most of us tend to associate it with cross river and people in Calabar specifically
0: and it's also consumed in vietnam china south korea and switzerland by the way and i'm sure it's eating in lot of other places too in most of the asian countries listed above though, there's no preferred breed per se it's more about the preferred color
1: so the darker and browner dogs are what are typically eaten and the breeds range from cocker spaniel to retrievers labradors and the pekinese which is actually the most common breed eaten in china in nigeria we're not
0: exactly sure on the specifics of the breed but it's what we know as local dog or bingo like that's that's the breed
1: that's the name bingo <laughs> i mean shout out to nigerians every dog is bingo every goose is billy <laughs> it's just very...
0: yeah we're known for keeping it simple we're not embellishing language straight to the point but the dog is also known as i'm not sure if i'm getting it right it's been likened to the basenji dog that is popular in congo or central africa and also the kombai dog in southeast asia so for clarification it's that dog that brown and white dog you see loitering the street just aimlessly picking up after humans picking up food and just eating and they have long snouts, erect ears, sometimes erect ears. They have a elongated body. And fun fact, they don't bark. Like, they're the barkless dogs.
1: Yeah, if you frequent the streets or if you are in tune with the streets, then you might know the dog as 404, named after the French Peugeot 404 that was popular in Nigeria around the 80s, 90s. Is that car that your dad used to drive you to primary school with. And as you can guess, it's apparently because the dog could run as fast as the car.
0: (laughs) Like I said, Nigerians, known for keeping it simple language-wise. And I just think there's something sinister, though, about naming a dog after a car because of how fast it runs. It's like, yeah, you can run fast, but I'm still going to catch you, though. So what's the point? (laughs) You
1: know, (laughs) Nigerians are psychopaths, so it tracks. Mm. There's nothing, it's very in character. (laughs) Sha, I've eaten a lot of questionable things, but dog has never been one of
0: them. Same here. And I wonder what it tastes like.
1: Apparently, the flavor profile is closest to pork and I hear that it has a very distinct smell that's just mouth-watering. So I'd love to try it, I'm curious. I have dogs
0: in my house, though. this is off the record and I would send you one. They're annoying as
1: hell, so I'm pretty sure everybody would understand that, I mean, I could just give you one of them. I've told you time without number that one of these days I will call Animal Services for you. because There's, there's no Animal Services
0: you. in Nigeria. They will look at you and like,
1: okay, let's <laughs> eat. <it. laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> you will turn in that dog and then you come back tomorrow and see them challenge. No, you can't say,
0: organize
1: us. Organize okay. <laughs> 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 anyway, us. Anyway, anyway. anyway, while we're on the subject of dogs and non-Western meats, I remember when I lived in Kazakhstan, now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure that the burger I used to get from the burger joint near my house was 98% horse meat. I want to know how many burgers it took for you to realize that you were not eating beef. That's not important. That's not relevant to the story. All you need to know is that my bowel movements were different like bubble guts all over the gap Ooh. and then one day my dad just casually strolls in and he's like oh you know horse meat is like their national meat here and um that's when i now put two and two together and it's like oh why still so did that shit look because it stopped what
0: did you pick up any russian though accentuating 98 percent horse meat
1: now that you ask i actually did mm-hmm. i picked up one important phrase in russian
0: yeah
1: and it was um and that means thank you very much because I like to be polite yeah, I don't know
0: it's enough for me because you're not really speaking that Russian with conviction like your name is Vladimir and you've had vodka for breakfast <laughs> violent, okay. aggressive okay. Yeah, it was a cultural exchange but anyways I know for sure that they don't eat as much horse as they did before it's like a whole thing now
1: yeah they're trying to cut back and I wonder how much of that desire to come back is actually influenced by the West. Uh, well, no, actually, Kazakhstan is... It's in both Europe and Asia. Yeah. But anyway, you get my points.
0: Yeah, I know, and it's its a thing I've... It's a trend I've noticed um, with, you know, people, that, non-Westerners, basically, because if you speak with a lot of Asians and people from the South-South in Nigeria, they are very quick to give that disclaimer that... They don't eat dog and we cannot ignore the reality that it's probably a byproduct of interacting with whiteness and that colonial handover from those experiences. But we'll touch on that later. Dogs aside though, Nigerians have a very, very interesting meat eating habit.
1: Yeah, like how we eat all parts of practically every animal. Nigerians eat liver, kidney, foot, brain, intestine, skin, everything. Bobwe bogwe, all joined.
0: Yeah, I found out people eat fish eyes and chicken heads,
1: and I haven't been the same since. The thing is that that line between eating chicken head and being a ritualist is is very blurry. Mm. Very, very blurry. (laughs) I won't lie, though. I love me some chicken foods because that skin, when it's fried, the texture of them toes, mmm. Mm, 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 mm. something else okay i would something cut else. you off before you just this <laughs> but
0: we also eat a lot more animals outside of conventional beef chicken pork fish there's grass cutter which is basically bush rat pangolin goats sea snails land snails snakes alligators antelopes rams
1: which are male sheep adora didn't know Thanks for that. Thanks very much. But anyway, for a lot of Nigerians, meals are basically incomplete without meat, even though it's actually comparatively the most expensive item on most plates majority of the time.
0: It's the fourth most commonly consumed food group in Nigeria, behind grains, flours, and vegetables. But it makes up most of the average weekly household
1: spend on food in Nigerian homes. Because it's kind of like a prize, Mm -hmm. you know. I remember when I was younger, it was a thing to not get to eat your meat until you had finished the rest of your food. Oh, wow. Oh, wow.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's nutritional manipulation. Right? What what is, this like? It's like, I, is this just something i having? You know, no, no, I yeah. can't really relate. I've heard of it, but I can't relate because my nanny had other plans. she denied us water until we had finished eating our food. So it's like, finish, you know, what? you know, go to drink water. No, <laughs> yeah. That's childish. Yeah. yeah yeah it was a whole thing my my parents figured it out but i guess we now understand why meat has been prized it's relatively expensive although there are cheaper options that still you know slap like suya
1: oh suya is delicious Mm -hmm. like Um, For our non-Nigerian listeners, because this is an internationally acclaimed podcast, Mm. um, suya is a skewered meat grilled on an open flame, so kind of like kebabs, and it can be beef, ram, or chicken. And ram
0: testicles, I found.
1: Yeah, if you're into that. Mm. And it's seasoned with yaji, which is this blend of peanuts, ginger, garlic, paprika, pepper, and other things, and it's sold as street food for as little as 200 naira per skewer. They have something similar in Sudan called agashi, and again in Sierra Leone, their version is called kankankan, but back to Nigeria.
0: Of course, there's also kilishi, which is dried lean cuts of meat grilled on a wire grill and seasoned with labu, which is a condiment made from peanuts, spices, salt, ground onions, and water. And sometimes to sweeten the meat, they put some honey in the labu paste, just a little je ne sais quoi. <laughs>
1: Jenny Kwan. Um, <laughs> what i really want to try is this blood sausage called mutura and it's from kenya it's typically eaten by the kikuyus and the maasai and it's a spicy sausage made with the offal of goat cow lamb and all these other meats then it's seasoned with ginger garlic cilantro onions and chili and then the kicker hmm. there's a healthy serving of some blood for that Mm, mommy. It's funny because that's right
0: up my alley.
1: Like, mm. you know, I
0: love, her, so, you know, I'm not God food. So, you know, <laughs> risque. Yeah. But it's, I find it strange because like, you were living in Kenya and you were eating zebra
1: and ostrich and you couldn't even double in some, what's it called again? Mutura. Mutura. Stop minding my business. That's all I have to say to you. Mm. The only African meat that I wouldn't try at this point is teresiga. Mm.
0: Oh, that's um, raw meat from Ethiopia. Yeah, raw meat. Mm. Okay, but teresiga <laughs> literally translates to raw meat. And it is basically what it says it is. Chunks of raw meat typically served with mitmita, a powdered hot chili mixed with spices or awaze, a kind of chili paste. It's said to have gained popularity during wartime. You know, soldiers didn't want to risk being caught while staking out. And they knew that fires would draw attention. So what they did was just eat the meat raw. And it basically caught on. I guess that thing about being a soldier just makes you an influencer. I think think soldiers... You know what?
1: You know what? Okay.
0: You know what? Because it's also the same thing with... um, What's it called... Yeah, in Taimori, like, it was a whole thing. Samurais would go through Ooh. and when they come back, they serve them sushi and sashimi on naked That's bodies, cool. and it became this thing. So, soldiers are influencers. To
1: do... Soldiers the first influencers. Interesting. Random, but do you think we've ever... Eaten?
0: Meat has become such a prized staple in most of our diets that there are now luxury meats that can set people back thousands of dollars.
1: Bluefin otoro sashimi, for example, which is the belly of the bluefin tuna fish, is sold for anywhere between $40 to $200 a pound.
0: And wagyu, which are the Japanese cows known for their rich marbling that also produce the famed Kobe beef, they can sell for upwards of $30,000 per cow and about $300 per pound of Kobe steak.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the one that I order on the dates with zero intentions of even sniffing that bill. I like it. I'm just hearing this and idea. I'm
0: just getting upset because I know for a fact that you would order a Kobe steak, well done, and you're still going to pretend like you didn't waste <laughs> the last
1: person's money. Uh, I sure will. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I sure will. You cannot pay mm. me enough to eat that steak, right? I'm sorry. But that's how I'm it's sorry. meant to be eating, though
0: It's like you're not meant to eat good steak dry tough chewy and you know flavorless good steak is meant to be juicy tender and apparently medium to rare steak actually digest faster
1: than Why well, won't you digest steak. faster
0: yeah i'm just glad oh, okay i'm just tired of having this argument with you i'm just tired you're an arsonist i have made peace with this. <laughs> anyways was meat always a prized staple food was it always integral to so many cuisines the way it is today? And does it still have a place in today's culinary culture?
1: You tell Nigerians that one and they'll tell you that something must kill a man. And you know what? It's me. I'm Nigerians. But you do make a fair point. Even though the obvious rebuttals are you know first and foremost the protein argument that is where we get the majority of our proteins and the majority of our nutrients and because of that it's essential for our survival and we've now become biologically predisposed to prefer it and to crave it and some of that is true
0: but of course the bigger picture is a lot more complicated than that so marta zaraska wrote this book called meat Hooked, and in it she disputes this idea that humans need meat in the way we needed it back then
1: so we actually started eating meat about 2.6 to 2.7 million years ago. And it was as a result of an acute change in the climate that began to decimate the forest and make everywhere hotter and drier. Because of this, The nutrients the early humans
0: were getting from their plant-based diets were getting harder to source because of deforestation.
1: And nutrients, like we all know, are what keep us alive and what give us energy. So our ancestors had to find alternative sources in order to survive. The alternative
0: sources came in the form of omnivorous animals that,
1: prior to this point,
0: were living in the forest, but were now being forced out to find more grazing lands.
1: And although at the time, the early humans were not hunters capable of bringing down these huge animals on their own, nothing stopped them from scavenging and essentially eating the carcasses of the animals that had already been hunted and killed.
0: These new protein sources were richer and offered way more nutrients per serving than the leaves and seeds they were eating before. And this new injection of super nutrients started to change their bodies and helped us evolve.
1: When we discovered fire and started cooking these meats, they became a lot tastier. And cooking is also why we started digesting a lot faster. It's also why scientists believe that this has been the biggest contribution to our evolution as humans. Because now that we stopped expending as much energy on digestion, all that excess energy could now be used to grow our brains when humans did eventually develop
0: tools because our bigger brains were making us smarter we started hunting and hunting overtook scavenging about seven hundred thousand years ago as the primary
1: means of obtaining meat and of course hunting also started to serve a social function because it then became a way of separating the boys from the men exactly
0: so the big men were out in the field killing woolly mammoths and doing men things and generally staying out of women's businesses and the better they were at hunting the more prestige they gained the more accolades they gained so hunting became a way to earn the distinction of the alpha male
1: the apex of the social ladder that made men leaders. Hunting is also how we see this relationship between meat and masculinity first start to emerge. And it's a relationship that obviously still endures today, albeit not as literally. But in Nigeria, for example, you hear things like, the biggest meat is for the head of the house.
0: But this doesn't explain why we only eat certain animals today or why we consider some meats
1: wild and some domesticated. You're right. And I think the first question we need to ask ourselves is, are all animals edible, though? Well, yes,
0: to some extent. I mean, all mammals and birds are edible, but when it comes to fish and insects, most of them are. But they're obviously poisonous species like blowfish, some species of octopuses and some insects. But the point is that there are hundreds of thousands of species that exist today and we eat a very small proportion of them
1: hmm westerners more so no they stay inside that big six more strictly than we do in this part of the world big
0: six being cow chicken lamb pig for mammals then birds let's say chicken and turkey then no reptiles no amphibians then some species of fish and shellfish
1: yeah exactly although they do do the occasional venison or duck
0: these meats we've mentioned are considered domesticated meats but what
1: does that really mean? Um domestication is like a whole branch of animal science, mm-hmm. but we shall condense it for you. All. So, domestication in a nutshell is the exertion of undue influence by one party onto another party for the selfish gain of the subduing party. So, in real life terms, you can think about it like submitting to men. You know, how they try and convince you that it's a mutually beneficial relationship, but one party always seems to be benefiting more than the other. And I wonder why that is. Ooh. You just had to let the see in. Mm, okay. had to let that drake <laughs> <laughs> just, just in case they forget the agenda. Agenda must agenda. But what that agenda.
0: definition tells us is that humans exerted influence over these animals and plants to have more control over what they can offer us. And we immediately assume that food is that offering but that's just one way of looking at things
1: Right, and I think because we've now made that transition from villages and rural settlements to urban living spaces like towns and cities we see animals as either one of two things so they're either food or they're pets but historically speaking food was not the primary motivation for domesticating animals
0: we domesticated them for
1: a bunch of reasons really for
0: transportation for labor for clothes as security against predators as hunting companions for sports for entertainment oh like cockfighting exactly like cockfighting and more interestingly. We use them for religious purposes. So, animals like chickens, cows, lambs, and cats have all had religious connotations in the traditions of many societies. And it was this idea that they were touched by God that led us to domesticate them.
1: Yeah, that's something I didn't even pay attention to until, you know, you brought this up in the research because in Santerian faith, which is a Cuban religion developed by the diasporic Africans in Cuba, mostly um, people of Yoruba origin, chickens are actually sacrificed for initiation and ordination rituals.
0: Yeah, like what Azalea Banks tried to do that one time in her bathroom? And if we bring the concept to home, a lot of Nigerian traditional religion have deep ties with animals and it's a whole thing so the domestication theory pretty much states that we chose the animals to domesticate based on some basic criteria you know they have to be easy to feed animals must have a promiscuous mating system so they can reproduce faster and they must have the males dominate the women the females And it must not be the other way around. The males must not be appeasing the females. They don't want sims. We were were not trying to get sims. It's just a whole
1: thing. Anyway. I think it's also important to note that domestication is not a hostile takeover per se. Mm. So, some animals are more prone to domestication than others because it actually benefits them too in some way.
0: I also don't think we domesticated these animals. I think these animals started hanging out with us because they realized we had the resources they needed. They became more comfortable and then, you know, selective breeding and natural selection just started to happen as... We went along
1: this symbiotic relationship. Mm, So, like, they were pets first, beyond Mm. before anything
0: else. Yeah, exactly. And it's why I maintain that dogs only like their humans because they provide food and shelter. And, yeah, it's like if you were to stop providing, uh, your dog would up and leave and go to the next person that is giving that. so all this, oh my God! No, no, no. Let's protect no, no. dogs at all cost. I beg, they would mm-hmm. still leave you. <laughs> but yeah, like you said, domestication is not a hostile takeover. We were both using each other, and this is something we see in nature all the time. It's this mutually beneficial relationship between organisms like bees and flowers. And when you start
1: eating the other party, I think that mutualism just goes out of the window. It's like. I mean, that's why Nigerian goats are relocating to Los Angeles to be yoga goats because <laughs> they did not sign up for this shit. Mm. Not every goddamn sala. We <laughs> have to be no, running We life. use
0: rounds for salad babes. It's not good. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Speaking of goats, though, they're good examples of animals that were domesticated. But I'm starting to think that these criteria are arbitrary. So. I think all animals can be domesticated when you really
1: think about it. I mean, yeah, case in point, Tiger King. hmm hmm
0: hmm I look at zebras now, and I am convinced humans did not try enough to get them out of the wild. Because mm. when you look at them, they, they look so scared. They look like, oh, God. Like, <laughs> I need to go out. Like, I don't want... Like, these people are eating us. Like, I mean, they, they eat... They don't even if they're not omnivorous. They are herbivores, so it's like they would be mm. eating plants either way. And it's just I just I'm not even saying that. Oh, let's get them out to be using them, you know, for rides on the beach or for meat. It's like just take them away from you know the predators. Just take them to where grass abounds where they could just eat and mm. live lavish and you would see <laughs> the beautiful zebras so oh, it's just it's been bothering me. I'm just glad I have a
1: platform I can speak my truth <laughs> where I can speak my truth. Aura said, said I'm the zebra queen and you were watching zebra TV <laughs> <laughs> I
0: saw see what yes. zebras. Now I understand. Hey, there. I'm nice. more exotic, and I'm, they, gonna get, I'm gonna get that bitch Carol Baskin. Carol Baskin, <laughs> Killer Tigers. <laughs> I'm gonna get that bitch Carol Baskin. Anyway, we we're Carol domesticating Baskin. animals for a bunch of reasons before, but now we associate domestication primarily with food, and I'm starting to wonder when we made that transition. Did we just decide that these were the tastiest animals and then we just ran with it?
1: Well, I think the easiest answer to that question is probably proximity. Because if we're already using certain animals to do domestic work or to be in our farms and stuff, then why not just eat them?
0: It's these animals we were already using to do other things that now became our staple meat. Well, again, in Nigeria, Africa, let's say, and Asia, we still eat meats that aren't domesticated and as a result these meats are classed as wild or bush so we want to find out when did that distinction that westerners make that also slowly became part of our own food cultures when did that take off exactly
1: so for starters all meat was wild meat at some point including the ones that we are now domesticating. But in Europe, that distinction really started to take off at different times, but roughly 14th to 18th century. And around that time, two fundamental changes happened.
0: The first is that humans were becoming more sedentary and less nomadic, and this is what kick-started the distinction. We started staying in places for longer periods of time because we were transitioning into agricultural societies, and people didn't need to forage as much. They could just tend to their farms and domesticated livestock and eat the excess livestock.
1: However, though less nomadic people also meant that populations were now expanding quicker which then meant that the meat supply was actually getting scarcer because there were more mouths to feed on limited resources. This
0: of course was happening at different scales to different degrees at different times all over the world but what was peculiar about Europe was that another important change was also happening and
1: that was increased travel and travel was done primarily by ships. Back then shipmaking was very wood intensive because that's what made up the mass and body of ships. But the demand for wood started depleting forests, and the mass deforestation that was happening as a result of the shipping industry now meant that wild game was being pushed further and further inside the woods, making it a rare and oftentimes luxury item despite the increased demand.
0: This rarity, of course, meant that wild game was now reserved for kings and aristocrats. Hunting also became an aristocratic sport, And the rich used this power to stop the average citizen from getting wild meats from the forest.
1: They also used propaganda about the woods and forests being dark and dangerous places, as well as formal restrictions with heavy penalties like brandishing, castration, and eye gouging for people who still dared to hunt but were not of royal blood. And this, of
0: course, changed people's relationship with the wild and wild meats. They were less likely to hunt,
1: less likely to eat game, and more likely to just live off their domesticated livestock. When these Europeans started traveling to the new world and to Africa in particular, and sidebar, the people who were making these initial expeditions, they weren't Royals or aristocrats. They were working class people because they were seen as more expendable. So when these people got to Africa and they saw the lush forests and the woods, they carried that paradigm of dark, dangerous, forbidden woods that were being fed to them in Europe. And they started viewing the people that they met in Africa through that lens.
0: Eventually, More colonies started pouring in in the 18th and 19th centuries. They included the French, the English, the Dutch, the Germans, the Portuguese. And these European countries that were now administering African states came together in the 1900s and passed a law called the Convention for the Preservation of Wild Animals, Birds and
1: Fish in Africa. Literally, the beginning of conservation as we know it. It was a conservation law, but remember that conservation started in Europe as a means of classist exclusion. And this law was no different. It prevented local communities that depended on wild meat and fish for sustenance and survival from accessing these forests that had always been a part of their lives. With modernization and urbanization
0: cementing these changes, the idea that wild meat was a taboo or was uncivilized persisted, and that's essentially the source of the tension between domesticated and wild animals that we see today.
1: But of course, people in Nigeria, Africa, and Asia still consume wild meats despite these narratives, but the stigma endures. If you're interested
0: in knowing more about this and about bushmeats, wild meats, and game more generally, the sources are linked in our blog, which is at Uncooked Women on Medium. So follow us, like, share
1: learn something yeah leave a comment So we started the episode talking about dog meat in South-South and in Calabar in particular. And we wanted to highlight that as a way to start questioning two things. First, how food ties into identity because it is a cultural practice at the end of the day and culture is what dictates identity. Second, how on the flip side, because of food's links to identity, it can actually become grounds for treating people differently.
0: Yeah, this is where the disgust factor comes in. Why do we find certain animals and certain foods disgusting to eat when we haven't tried them before?
1: And why is it easier to feel disgust for certain people's foods and not others? Take sushi, for example, or foie gras. So sashimi, which is the fish parts of the sushi, is actually raw fish. And foie gras is fattened goose liver or fattened duck liver. And these are two things that definitely have the potential to disgust. I mean, to me, certainly to the same degree as dog meat, if not even more so. But somehow, the people who eat these things don't endure the same stigma. And for me, you can again start to see whiteness at work, you know, that colonial mentality at work, because those distinctions don't really make sense.
0: And to bring this conversation closer to home, Nigerian cuisine is so heavily dependent on a lot of offals and entrails like shaki, intestines, hearts, lungs, kidneys, which are a lot more disgusting than dog flesh when we think about it.
1: And for me, once you've eaten goat's brain, which is issue, I do not see why you should have any hang ups about eating dog meat. Like. But what is super interesting is how these choices about what we eat give us ammunition
0: to not only feel solidarity, but also become a benchmark for excluding people because they eat differently from us.
1: And that's very problematic because something as ephemeral as food should not be able to form the grounds for stereotyping an entire culture. And moreover, it shouldn't be able to be the grounds for weaponizing that stereotype to make them feel weak. But it's
0: really not surprising though, is it? If we're being honest, food is central to identity. And like I said, it can be as divisive as it is unifying. We need to construct meaning and identities, and food has always been embroiled in identity politics, class politics, and that phrase, um, you are what you eat, comes to mind, and it resonates, and historically, this kind of thinking has always paved the way for a lot of racist and tribalist behavior, and... We are in the thick of it now with everything going on with the coronavirus. We've seen how the coronavirus became the Chinese virus
1: based on their eating habits. You're absolutely right. And the thing about these stereotypes is that they are obviously less about food and more about the fact that food has become another conduit for the larger issue of identity politics. And identity politics are really the overarching politics of our time.
0: Everything triggers an identity debate these days. And I mean, it's pretty much the currency of social media. And I think we are heavily invested in these identities. Our mistakes, our flaws, our shortcomings, they become more about the social identities that we occupy and less about the fact that we are just clumsy human beings
1: that are prone to getting a lot of things wrong. I mean it's like this kind of limited binary thinking like you said it's so much more apparent on social media but in general i think human beings have always struggled to not put people in boxes and the thing is that the tendency to do that to box people in it's not a huge flaw because you know that's how we navigate our material environments you know labels are very important without labels you will walk into a grocery store you will see a plastic bottle of clear liquid and you won't know whether it's water or rubbing alcohol. So it's important. But we shouldn't be too invested in labels, I think.
0: Exactly. And it's so hard to not be invested because when you think about it, identity is a very, very fragile thing. And it mm. just creates a lot of existential anxiety because it just forces us to ask these difficult and deeply philosophical questions about who we are and what we are doing in this simulation called life.
1: (laughs) Get me out of this simulation. (laughs) I mean, yeah. And I think people forget that or they would just rather not deal with the truth that they are scared of the fact that, you know, who am I? What am I doing here? That's a question with no real answers. Mm. And as a consequence, it means that identity it's not fixed it's not stable it's not something concrete that we can always lean on you know just like the world we're living in it is in constant flux it is dynamic it's being created and recreated constructed and deconstructed never stagnant always changing and the reality that the world is so malleable so flexible i think that can be very unsettling
0: and i think that is what is at the heart of discrimination that fixing of identities and when you think about it grounding is what makes us feel more secure in this chaotic world and grounding other people makes defining ourselves easier So it's like Mm. identity formation is a positive and negative process at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's an active and passive thing. So we actively build identities based on the things that we do as individuals and as communities. But then we also build them passively based on the things that we don't do. So in a passive sense, we are who we are because of who we aren't. Like the Mm. word, like... Yeah, yeah, we
0: define ourselves ultimately to define others. And identity is about excluding other people. It's about exclusion just as much as it is about inclusion. But how we handle difference is very instrumental to the type
1: of worlds we build, whether they're accommodating worlds or hostile worlds. Very true. And sometimes I think that people find it easier to exist in a hostile world that punishes difference that they don't understand than they find it easier to, to be in that sort of place than to start that existential process of questioning their identity if that questioning now means that they have to interact with the polar opposite of their identity in a more radical way. So you have a situation like homophobia and Christianity, for example. So the argument becomes, I'm a Christian, it's against my religion. But are you going to deny that your religious view is getting people killed? Are you going to Mm -hmm. act like there are not, you know, queer people in Nigeria who are being disowned who are being lured into rendezvous and dating apps to literally be killed is that something you're going to act like it's not happening will you keep on hiding behind oh i'm a christian it's against my religion mm-hmm. you know it's this is where we kind of see um the stickiness of staying in a fixed identity mm-hmm. become very problematic because it's this thing of okay it's who i am if you want me to accept the polar opposite that is clearly incompatible with who i am then that means i need to start doing a radical reevaluation of who i am and more importantly what happens when i start that process and i can't find an answer
0: and i think that is exactly what a lot of people are afraid of in their heart of hearts like we're essentially telling them to unlearn and reevaluate their own core beliefs and not just about themselves but about the world and reality as they have come to know and understand i think that's a very very daunting task because there is a lot of uncertainty and like you said what if i can't find the answer
1: yeah i mean it's not it's not an easy thing i'm not going to sit here and say that it's the easiest thing in the world i'm not going to say that it's common sense but What I will say is that what makes doing that hard work worth it is a genuine belief and recognition of mutual humanity. Mm -hmm. So it's that genuine belief that if another person is suffering, you share in that suffering because you are human and it means that it could happen to you too. And because of that, you know, you should always be working. We should always be working towards mutual, beneficial existences. And it is
0: why I have always maintained that as long as your core beliefs, as long as your values, as long as your beliefs are not hurting anybody, then you have nothing to worry about. You have nothing, you have no reason to be clutching your pearls. You have no reason to be triggered as long as you are not hurting another person.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm right here with you. And back to what started this whole conversation in the first place, which was stereotyping and othering, we see that, that those processes are only possible when we don't acknowledge our, our mutual humanity. So dehumanization and objectification are like step one of discrimination because... It's only when we start perceiving others as less than human or as objects that we can now fix their identities and use that to justify discriminatory behavior.
0: Exactly. I mean, think about how the core of sexism is it going on about women's purposes and duties and roles, like we are tools and instruments, not full autonomous people. And the moment you recognize and honor the fact that we are full independent human beings, Every argument about subordination and being helpmates just goes out of the window. Being a person and being a means to an end are, how do I say this?
1: Yeah, they are mutually exclusive. Period. That's on period. And the church says... (laughs) (laughs) But things, of course, get more complicated when you realize that discrimination has levels. So the other can other. Straight women can be homophobes, black men can be sexist to black women, poor white people can be racist to poor black people, and on, and so on, and so on. So being the other doesn't actually preclude you from othering other people. Mm -hmm. So, again, it goes back to this idea that identity is fluid, it is complex, it's complicated. We can be so many things at the same time. We can be saint and sinner. Mm -hmm angel and demon friend and fool victim and abuser
0: i mean nigeria is another example we talk about the effects of colonialism and racism on the country but then turn around and be both tribalist and classist and islamophobes and when we start over relying on them it's usually for nefarious purposes Every dominant social category you can think of was created to concentrate power. Whiteness, masculinity, class. And it's not a coincidence that we are forced to uphold these categories because their power lies in our social dealings and how we comply with arbitrary rules of identity that they reinforce.
1: A woman is too emotional to lead. So surprise, surprise, all powerful leadership positions go to men. Black people have more physical strength, and this makes us more pain-resistant, meaning forced labor isn't as hard for us. And these kind of things, this kind of rhetoric, it goes on and on and on and on. It, it, It does not make sense. It doesn't have any bearing in reality. It's just about upholding social categories that cement power. So it's very important to maintain distance, to question everything, and most importantly, to keep a genuine love for humanity and for yourself at the center of all things because at the end of the day that's the only thing that's going to keep you in check when you catch yourself about to stereotype or discriminate against someone
0: the light in me sees the light in you namaste
1: namaste um i to go. that's from yoga with adrian okay So we know why we eat meat, and we know why today we eat some meats and not others. We also know how meat eating and food in general is wrapped up in identity. But the question of whether we should still be eating meat remains.
0: So as a vegetarian for exactly uh, seven days, I'm of course extremely passionate about this conversation.
1: (laughs) Anyway. Even as the resident meat eater, I still think that we do need to have a few words on the unethical and unsustainable meat production. We need to honestly
0: have a candid conversation about what meat production is doing to
1: us and to the climate. That is one of the only arguments for plant-based eating that actually reeled me in because the rest are just too theatrical, you know. But the pressure that meat production puts on the environment is immense, you know, both in terms of land and water. We keep cutting down trees to have enough land for grazing animals and cows, for example, consume an average of 16 pounds of vegetation to produce just one pound of meat. And the water involved in producing that pound is also about 2,500 gallons so we are using a lot of resources for very very small output even just down to how animals are slaughtered and how they're treated we can also do a better job at that Mm. and this is of course something feminist
0: (laughs) i got you (laughs) feminists have been talking about for (laughs) a while now because at the end of the day it's all connected the way we treat animals is indicative of the way we think about humanity
1: Yes um, and it's actually called environmental feminism or ecofeminism and it is a faction that approaches equality from the premise that redefining humanity in a way that is truly inclusive of all bodies and all identities necessarily means engaging with how we define non-human animals. Meat raises questions of how we define both our collective
0: humanity and our individual identities so to be human usually means to be above all other animals which I don't believe because go and tell them one to kill killer will. Anyways, it's an opportunity to ask what we are going to do with our complexity as humans. With great power
1: comes great responsibility and all of that stuff. We can't sit here and claim higher species You know, we can't say, okay, we're not like lions or tigers and hippos and then go around and still perpetuate violence that is not necessary. You know, if we claim to be more emotionally complex and more intelligent, then that should translate into how we treat non-human animals. We shouldn't be savages. We shouldn't be brutes. We shouldn't be barbarians.
0: I mean, yeah, we should pretty much just set good examples. Again, the light in me sees the light in you namaste namaste mm.
1: <laughs> We're so full of shit. thank you thank you thank you thank you for tuning in once again and i just want to let you know that our listenership is growing and that is only because of you because you are sharing you are liking you are telling the world about us and i just want to say a very big thank you you know every single time you tell someone about us every time you share this mm-hmm. podcast you make a difference in mm-hmm. the lives of two okay. you, emotionally you know, know you're donating value yeah. to us and it means yeah. the
0: world but okay but for real though we are you know this is a two-woman project we're literally the, everything behind it we produce it and it really means the world to us that you know you like and share and
1: spread uh agenda because before one like, valuation yeah you can change the lives of two yeah. insecure, over educated, underexposed <laughs> women and literally thank you so much.
0: Thank you. <laughs>